I've been wanting to remind you we have some new people with us. The book table's free, so after the service, feel free to come up and take a look. We've got some really good stuff, and uh, yeah, it's free. So if you see something there that you want to read, please take it home and read it. I don't like poetry at all. Uh, how many of you like poetry? Okay, something wrong with you people, as far as I can tell. Um, I just don't like it. Maybe I'm just too black and white. Um, I don't know. I just really, I get really bored trying to dissect all the cryptic meanings of every word and or phrase. It wears me out. <clears throat> but as I meditated on our text tonight, the words of the 20th century American poet Robert Frost were inescapably in the forefront of my mind. Some of you have already guessed which poem I'm talking about. It's his famous poem entitled, The Road Not Taken. Frost writes, Two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down, one as far as I could. Then I took the other, it having the better claim, because it was grassy and needed wear. And some of you will be familiar, I think, with the, the most famous lines of this poem. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I don't know if Robert Frost was a Christian or not. I don't know anything about his personal life, but I have a hunch maybe he heard someone talk about the Sermon of the Mount, or maybe he read it at some point in his life. Maybe he even unconsciously plagiarized Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ closes the most famous sermon ever preached in Matthew chapter 7. And as He does, He exhorts His hearers to take the road less traveled. It's the narrow way. You heard the text read. It's the small gate. It's the one that leads to life. And Jesus says there are few. There are few who find it. How many of you have read this book. It used to look like this. Now it looks like this. Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. How many of you read this book? I think it's the biggest mover on our book table. I was trying to calculate. I bet, I bet about 400 have gone off the table in the six and a half years that we've been here. I've had more than one person tell me it was like a bomb, a spiritual bomb going off in their life. I love it when people tell me. I love it when they say, my world has been shaken. I faced the truth. This book helped me face the truth. And I'm not the same anymore. I love, obviously, hearing those kinds of stories. Piper is right in this little book. The vast majority of mankind, including much of professed Christianity is living their one very precious, very short life in such a way that they are wasting it. Hence the title, Don't Waste Your Life. Piper says if you ask the vast majority of people what a life well spent looks like, this is what you will hear. Well, get a good education. Maybe have a good wife or a good husband. Have a good job making good money. Have a couple of good kids. Have a nice home, some good friends, and go on great vacations. Have a fun, leisurely, well-funded 
retirement. While there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, there's one glaring omission. Does anybody know what it is? Christ! <laughs> Beloved, if you miss Christ, you're wasting your life. If you're not giving yourself away to Christ, you're wasting your life. John, Paper, John Piper makes a very powerful point here. He makes a very powerful point. He says that uh, this, is not, this is not only not a life well spent, it's a, it's a life wasted. And he goes on to say people who have this, these priorities in their life, he says, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy to live for such small things. Such small things, ultimately. He's right. It's a tragedy because Jesus Christ is at worst wholly absent or at best is merely a religious afterthought. And that is indeed a tragedy. Piper writes about the road less traveled. Let me quote him here. Listen to me just for a moment. John writes, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. Most people slip by in life without this passion for God. Spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and for pleasure, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. I love that line. I never forgot that line. I read that line circa 2001 and I've never forgotten it. People, the vast majority of mankind, squandering their life Chasing bubbles that burst. Then John Piper talks about the true believer, the true disciple we've been talking about the last several weeks. The real Christian. Discipleship is salvation. Salvation is discipleship. This is what we've been talking about. Piper writes about the, the disciple who's on the narrow road. He says, God and Jesus Christ has unleashed us from such small dreams. I love that. Beloved, have you been unleashed? Christ came to unleash you from such small things. You have been redeemed by God for God to glorify God and you're on your way to God. Everything else is a big number two. Everything else comes after that. It's the road less traveled. It's the narrow way. It's the small gate. It's the road that only true disciples walk on. Disciples who are no longer chasing those bubbles that burst. They've been unleashed. And they're living in a way that God intends for His people to live. So I'm going to stop before I get into the text. Just ask you a couple of questions right here at the beginning. Which road are you on, friend? Which road are you on? Are you on the road less traveled or are you on the broad road that you heard Jim read about out of Matthew chapter 7? Do your ideas of life, a life well spent look more like the world's or do they look more like a disciple? I'm asking you to look at your lives tonight in a critical way. Are you still living a really small life confined to what the world says is, is important? Or have you been unleashed and are you hot on the heels of the living God whose name is Jesus Christ? Have you walked through the small gate? Are you on the narrow gate? Are you on the road less traveled? Or are you still chasing bubbles that burst? Our 
random sermon on Mark chapter 10 two weeks ago. I told you it was just a random sermon. came out of nowhere. You know, I just had to preach it. It was on my heart. It's turned into a little mini-series here. And if you've been out on the podcast site, you've noticed that Mark, the Mark 10 sermon was entitled, Real Christianity Sold Out. Discipleship is salvation. Salvation is discipleship. Matthew 13 last week, I entitled it, Real Christianity Bearing Fruit. Real disciples abide in the vine and they yield a spiritual crop. And in keeping with that theme, tonight it just seemed good to me to take a look at the last half of Matthew chapter 7. I think a good title would be, Real Christianity, the Narrow Way. Real Christianity, the Narrow Way. Real disciples, take the road less traveled. Real disciples, do that. As I've been saying the last several weeks, Jesus never called anybody to be religious. He never called anybody to be a church member. What does Jesus say? Go ye therefore and make disciples. Disciples. This is the command of God. Jesus didn't say go into the world and create religious people. He said you go make disciples that will come after Me. That's the mandate. That's the mandate. Real, authentic, genuine, biblical, born-again Christians are real, authentic disciples. There's no, there's no distinction here. They know Christ. They love Christ. They obey Christ. They walk with Christ. They're not merely church members. They're not merely religious. They actually love Him and they go with Him. Whatever He says, they do. Albeit imperfectly. We understand that. This is the call of the Gospel. They're sold out. They bear fruit. They take the narrow way. This is real Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. Jesus Christ preaches the best sermon ever preached and He brings it to uh, its evangelistic uh, end as He issues an exhortation, a warning, and an illustration. You heard Jim read the text. Let's look real quick at verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Jesus Christ exhorts His hearers to do something. What does He say? What's the, what's the exhortation? What? Find the narrow gate. Enter! We say it all the time in here. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not passive. God has called us to go with Him. We're not just pew sitters. We're to be on the heels of Jesus Christ. Christianity has never been a passive endeavor. It is not a noun. It has always been a verb. It's never been about brain-dead, heart-dead, mind-numbing, lukewarm religion, which is what it has turned into in most places. But that is not what Jesus Christ came for. He didn't come to create religious people. I'm going to say it again. He came to save and create disciples. Men and women who would turn the world upside down one life at a time as they share the truth and as they live the gospel in front of the lost. This is real Christianity, friends. This is real 
Christianity. Jesus says, come on! Wake up! Wake up from your religious stupor and go with Me. This is the Word of God. Enter by the narrow gate. No more small dreams. No more chasing bubbles that burst. I love how He says it in Luke 13.24. Jesus says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. He says, strive to do it. You don't just fall into being a Christian. You either want to be one more than anything else or you're not one. Jim, you're being hard on us. I know. I'm almost always hard on you. <laughs> it's because I love you. And I don't want you to waste your life being religious. I just don't. It's too pathetic. It's just too pathetic. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that Luke 13, 24 verse. He says, put your mind on your life with God. He says, put your mind on it. He says, the way to life and to God is vigorous. It requires your total attention. I love that. We're not like fish floating downstream. We're like salmon going upstream. If we're true disciples. Beloved, are you vigorous in your pursuit of Christ? Are you vigorous in your pursuit of Christ? We understand. Let me make this qualification. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by works. We have not uh, edited the Gospel in any way. We don't take away from God's Word or add to it. Discipleship is not a prerequisite to salvation. What? Discipleship is what? A consequence of salvation. We don't become disciples to be saved. We become disciples because we are saved. This is the biblical teaching, friend. This is the biblical teaching. We've been born again. We've been unleashed from small dreams. And we are, quite frankly, hopelessly in love with this God. And I dare you to stop me from going with Him. I dare you to try and stop me. Beloved, this is why real Christians can be martyred all over the world. They're hopelessly in love with Christ. It's a real deal. It's not religion. It's, uh, it's everything. Frost's poem offers two ways, just like the Sermon on the Mount. One is well-worn. It's the broad way. The other is not. One is wide. Many travel it. The other is small. And few find it, Jesus says. Jesus, of course, is talking about the road to heaven and the road to hell. The broad road, the easy way, the popular way, the normal way, the fashionable way, the politically correct way is the way of natural man. It is the way of the world. It's all the man-made, man-centered religions, philosophies, values, ideals, beliefs, and culture, including false Christianity. We've talked about it many times in here. Much, if not most, of what is called Christian, Christendom today is apostate. They no longer have this for their sole authority. They've left the Word of God. They're just making up stuff now. Whatever seems good, they just make it up. And people believe it because they don't read their Bible. People believe it because they don't read their Bible. Jesus says all of this will lead to destruction. It's the broad road. 
Proverbs 16.25, he says there's a, the, the Lord says there's a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. That is the broad road. Jesus Christ has uh, said it clearly for all the world to hear and understand. There's no mystery here. Jesus says, I am the small gate. I am the narrow way. I am the door. No man comes to the Father, but what? Through me. That's what this text is saying. Jesus is making it very clear to the, to the religious leaders who are hearing Him. There's only one way to God. His name is Jesus. Basta Kuzi. Jesus is quite blunt. Few. Few are those who find the narrow gate. It's not for everyone who merely says, oh, I believe in God. It's not for everyone who merely is religious and attends church. It's not merely for someone who prays the prayer mindlessly and is baptized. It's for disciples. It's for people who have been born again in love with Christ and they're walking with Him. No, none of us do it perfectly, but that is the momentum and direction of our lives. We saw it two weeks ago in Mark 10. Disciples are sold out. We saw it last week. I think it was in Matthew 13, if memory serves. They, uh, they bear fruit. Discipleship is salvation. Salvation is discipleship. Verse 15. Jesus gives a warning here about false teachers. And I won't read the whole thing, but you heard the text read. These are false prophets. They, they're sheep's uh, they are sheep in wolves' clothing. And, and Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. The context here, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. They'd taken the truth of God and they had uh, twisted it into a perverse system of self-justification and self-righteousness. They were merely keeping rules and box-checking and doing religious performance. That's what Judaism had descended into. Devolved into. As you may remember, Jesus had no tolerance for these religious leaders and their religiosity. You may remember over in Matthew 23, he, he blasted these men with eight woes. He said, Woe unto you, you religious men. And woe means to be uh, cursed or to, to be damned. He says, Woe to you, you are blind guides and hypocrites. He says, You will not enter the kingdom of God. He says, Your performance-based religion, it's all pretense. You've neglected the spirit and heart of the law. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. He says, you are serpents and vipers. How could you ever avoid hell? This is what Jesus said to the religious men of His day. Maybe the most religious men ever to walk the planet, actually. There were false prophets in Jesus' day, and false prophets have always plagued God's people. Uh, of course, in these last days, they have only multiplied... Uh, counterfeit prophets, priests, preachers, teachers are everywhere. They are literally everywhere to be seen. Propagating a false and counterfeit Christianity. You walk into your average so-called Christian bookstore in the U.S. and the wolves in sheep's clothing will be smiling down at you from the bestseller list. 
pseudo, false, fake, phony, sham gospels. Jesus said, you'll know these guys by their fruits. I like the way Peter said it, 2 Peter chapter 2. He said these kinds of teachers, he said they're stains and they're blemishes on the body. They, 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 they are reveling in their deceptions. They are springs without water. I thought that was vivid. They, they are trained in greed. Jude says it over in Jude verse 12. He says, they are hidden reefs in the church. They are clouds without water. They are autumn trees without fruit. Jesus says you will know the false prophets by their fruit. If you're biblically knowledgeable, you ought to be able to pick up a book and read the first five pages and know if this guy's good or not. You'll probably know in the first five pages if this guy's a false prophet or a true one. False or true. Jesus said you'll know these false prophets by their fruit. Of course, the same can be said. The analogy holds true. The same can be said for false Christians. We talked about this last week in John 15. We talked about the Judas branch. Jesus removed the Judas branch. It did not bear spiritual fruit. It was removed. The false disciple will always become evident because there either will be uh, fruit, uh, bad fruit or there will be no fruit. Certainly no spiritual fruit that glorifies Jesus Christ. We talked a lot about that last week. Again, if we're real disciples, it won't just be in our words. It's not just a noun. It will be a verb in our life. As James says, we'll be word doers. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus gives a second warning. It's about false disciples. Maybe the, some of the most solemn verses in all the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? While I don't remember the date of my first sermon, I vividly remembered the text. It was this text. I preach this text. I grew up in a tradition that is known for making church members. They're highly skilled at making church members. But not very many disciples. Not very many people that actually love Christ and follow Christ. They're nice people. They're proper people. They're respectable people. They do good things sometimes. They're just not converted. They've just not given themselves away to Christ. It's just religion. It's just looking good on Sunday. That's all it is. So tradition, the tradition I grew up in, it was a labor of love for me to preach Matthew chapter 7 to these people. And that's what Jesus, this is a labor of love. He, he, he's warning these religious men. He's warning them. And I don't know if you noticed here, I trust that you did, they are not merely religious in a generic sense, they are religious in a Christian sense. They are religious in a Christian sense. This is not about Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and all other false religions. This is about people who think they know the real God. They think they're Christians. That's what this text is about. They not only think they're Christians, they think they're really impressive Christians. Did you see the text? 
And did you notice Jesus said, there's not just going to be a few of them. What does He say? Many. There will be many who are deceived. There are many who think they're Christians, but they are not. And these guys mentioned here, they're not your run-of-the-mill pew-setting Christians. These guys have done some impressive stuff. Right? Prophesied in Christ's name. Cast out demons in Jesus' name. Performed miracles in Jesus' name. As I heard one preacher say, that's probably better than your list. Probably better than my list. So how do we understand this text? What is Jesus saying to us here? Spiritual deception is real and it is rampant. In these last days, it is pervasive. It is ubiquitous. It is everywhere in the so-called church. There are many who think they're Christians, but they're not. There are many who, will, who call Him Lord, but they're merely religious. That's what verse 22 is all about. Counterfeit Christianity. Counterfeit Christianity. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Holy Spirit talks about this. He says there'll be false apostles and deceitful workers. It happened, it happened in the first century. The, the false teachers were already attacking the church. You were with us, if some of you were with us in our, our, our verse by verse exposition of Colossians. Paul was having to answer false teachers. Same thing in 1 John we looked at. Same thing in James. The false teachers are always present. 1 Corinthians 11.14 Here's the core of it. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Beloved. Satan walks around wearing the cloak of Christianity. And if you're not biblically knowledgeable, you won't even notice it's him. It's his best trick. It's his best trick. So in actuality, these great works listed in verse 22, they have nothing to do with Christ. Absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. It's all about uh, Satan. They're Satan-inspired and empowered uh, false Christianity. That's what we're seeing here in verse 22. Have you noticed? I bet you have. You ask most people, why should God let you into their heaven? into His heaven. Why should God let you? You know, this is something people evangelize with. I've never really used it very much. But why should God let you in His heaven? Most of the time, people will say, well, I'm pretty good. This is the answer you hear most of the time. Well, I'm not like them. I'm pretty good. You hear, well, I've done some good things. You know, I, I provide for my family. I pay my taxes sometimes. You know, you hear, you hear things like this. Oh, I, I go to church sometimes. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. This is the comments that you get most of the time. Well, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm, I'm something. That's what these guys in verse 22 are saying. Jesus says, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. 
They're showing Jesus all their impressive man-made religious resumes. I love what John MacArthur says about this text. I'm going to read you a quote here. It's very short. All the world's religions, including pseudo-Christianity, false Christianity, are based on human accomplishment. These guys are saying, look how impressive we are. God, I know you're impressed. I know you're glad we're on your team. Right? I know you're impressed. MacArthur continues, but biblical Christianity alone is based on divine accomplishment. It's not based on our accomplishment. It's based on... It's not based on my goodness. It's based on the goodness of Jesus. Amen? It's not based on my works. It's based on the finished work of Jesus. Amen? Biblical Christianity. It's as different as daylight is tonight with many of the false expressions of Christianity that uh, are perpetrated in the world. Verse 23. Here's the key. Jesus says, I will declare to them, I don't know who you are. You religious guys, I don't know who you are. Not only does He say that, He says, depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. God, you know, if there's one thing I know God hates, it's a self-righteous man. And that's what these guys are. These guys think they can parade in front of God, show their spiritual resume, show their religious resume, and God's just going to be impressed. Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Actually, you're workers of lawlessness is what the Lord says to them. You're workers of lawlessness. We've said it a million times in here. Real Christianity... It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. Everybody hear that? It's not about religion. It's about being in a relationship. This is utterly unique in the world. This kind of talk. No other system of belief talks like this. No other system of belief, no other false religion in the world talks like this. That you can have a relationship with the Creator God. No other faith talks like this. Only Jesus Christ and His apostles talk like this. I love it. You've got to love it. A real, personal, intimate, two-way relationship with the real God. John 17.3, Jesus defines eternal life. If you don't know what it means to have eternal life, Jesus makes it so simple we can't miss it. John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they may know You. He's praying to His Father. And Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. No! No. There it is. The crux of the Gospel. To know God. To be in relationship with God. I love how Jesus says it in John chapter 10. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. What? And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. There's an intimacy. Even as the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son. We're to know God. It's awesome. No, no other faith talks like this. <laughs> you know, I don't understand people that are lukewarm about Christianity. I really, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. God's talking about astonishing things, unspeakable things, things men would never have the gall to ask for. God freely gives. It's amazing. Intimacy with Him. 
How can we be lukewarm Christians? I, I, you know, this is why God hates lukewarm Christianity. Well, it's false. You can't be lukewarm and know Christ. It's Im impossible. Almost. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. And then as I close, you'll notice here that Jesus... Jesus contrasts, the, He closes His best sermon ever preached and he, and he gives an illustration. Verse 24 through 27, He says, Therefore everyone, someone tells me, everyone, someone tell me what the text says. Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts. Acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and what? does not act on them, he is a fool. So says the living God. While this truth is literally found all over the Bible, it is said no better than in James 1, verse 22. We've talked about it a lot. God says, Prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. God is anything but unclear. Really, all through the Bible, but He really drives the point home in James. He says, faith that hears and does nothing, it's deluded. James 1.22 Faith that talks and does nothing, He says it's useless. James 2.20 In fact, God says, do nothing. Faith is no faith at all. It's not New Testament Christianity at all. James goes, goes on to say, do nothing, faith is dead. It is dead. I love, I love that we went through the book of James a year or so ago, and I, I'll never forget this. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases James 2.17. I love this, I love this, I love this. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? It's outrageous nonsense. If we've read our New Testament, we understand this. Even our Old Testament. We understand it's outrageous nonsense. Again, we're Bible believers in this church. We don't preach salvation by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is what we preach. We aren't saved because we build upon Christ and His Word. We build upon Christ and His Word because we are saved. This is the Gospel. Real disciples go with Jesus. That's what they do. Real disciples go with Christ. That's what they do. Do. And when the storm comes, whether it's the storm of ultimate judgment, which is the context in this text, or the storm of temporal trials, we cannot be blown over and we cannot be blown away. We stand on the infinite, eternal, immutable rock. His name is Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the resurrected one. We stand on Him. He is our rock. You saw it in the, the illustration here. We're building upon the rock. And we can't be blown away. We can't be blown over when the storm comes. The psalmists were all over this. They, they were enamored with the thought that God was their rock. You heard me open with Psalm 18.31. 
Who is a rock except our God? And in Psalm uh, 71, the psalmist says, uh, God is a rock of habitation. He's actually saying we're to live inside that rock of habitation. I love, again, I know I'm giving Eugene Peterson a lot of, a lot of publicity tonight. I love how he, he paraphrases there in Psalm 71. He says, God is my vast granite fortress. Amen? If we're in Christ, He's our vast granite fortress. Beloved, are you living like you're, you're standing on the vast granite fortress? I love that imagery. God is our vast granite fortress. He is that for His people both in time and in eternity. Our awesome, omnipotent, good, faithful, and ever-attentive incarnate, crucified Savior God. You have to love, and I'm done. You have to love how simply yet how powerfully Jesus sums up all of life in these 15 verses. He says there's two gates, there are two ways, there are two trees, there are two fruits, there are two choices, and there are two destinies. There it is. All of life. 15 verses. One way is broad and wide. Most men are on that path. Suppressing the truth of God within them. Romans chapter 1. The other way is small and narrow. Few men are on that path. It is the road less traveled. Jesus has invited men to walk with Him. No more chasing bubbles that burst. No more small dreams. No more small lives. It's real Christianity. It's sold out, fruit-bearing, narrow-way Christianity. That's what it is. And I guess I'll just close with this question. Which road are you on, beloved? Which road are you on? And you know, sometimes it falls to me as your pastor because I love you to, to, do, to do probably what only a pastor would, would do or a very, very good Christian mature friend would do. And I'm just going to repeat the words to you that Paul lovingly gave to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Paul said, examine yourself to see if you are on the narrow way. To see if you are in the faith as, as Paul says it. Examine yourself. Examine yourself against the Word of God. Don't be deceived. Examine yourself, beloved. Examine yourself, friend. Against the Word of God. Salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. Real disciples are sold out. They're bearing fruit. And they're on the narrow way. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I praise You that You never allow us to be deceived unless we willfully want to be. You always just give us the truth. You don't try to spin it. You don't try to make it soft. You just tell us what it is. And I love You for that, Father. And I thank You that You give us the truth. I thank You, Lord, that You've made it clear to us that You're not interested in religion. That doesn't interest You in the least. You've come 
to seek and save that which was lost to make disciples. And oh God, I pray that everyone with an earshot of my voice is either a disciple or dead set on becoming one. What a beautiful invitation. Has there ever been a better invitation ever extended to mankind? Jesus says, come and go with Me. Come and have eternal life. Come and be one with the Father and the Son. Come and live forever in our presence where there are pleasures forever at My right hand. Has mankind ever been offered such an awesome invitation? I think not. Lord, I pray we would have the ears to hear. No more lukewarm Christianity. If we've been guilty of it, Lord, I pray that we would repent tonight and we would give ourselves wholly over to our beautiful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.